Hi, CityCast listeners. Houston's downtown skyline has evolved wildly over the last 50 years. Today, I am talking about that with Stephanie Barrett. She is the co-managing director of the architecture firm Gensler. And also with Raj Mankad, the op-ed director of the Houston Chronicle and the former editor of Sight, the Rice Design Alliance's magazine. It is Tuesday, August 16th, 2022. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. There's some hope for life. (laughs) I'm waiting for the World Cup. All we need is soccer? What on earth? Yeah. Are you thinking? Gonna activate the hell out of it. (laughs) I hope so. All right. Stephanie and Raj, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy happy to be here. So let's talk about downtown Houston over the last 50 years and looking at it through a certain set of buildings, um, buildings that your firm, Stephanie, has worked on, Mm -hmm. sort of buildings that can walk us through the decades. Let's back up real quickly and just say, what is Gensler? Gensler is an architecture and design firm, and we've mm-hmm. been uh, in the Houston area since 1972, and this year we're getting ready to celebrate our 50th anniversary. We have, um, we have 50 offices across the globe uh, with a little over 6,000 people. The, the Houston office, we are at about 250 people. We're the largest um, architecture firm. In the world. Yeah, in the world. So... Let's start in the 1970s then, talking about Houston's skyline. That Philip Johnson building, Pennzoil Place, was the mm-hmm. one that brought Gensler to Houston. Could we talk about it's what a, that building looks like? It's a very significant presence on our skyline. It is a significant presence. Most people, when I hear them describe it, the first thing they do is they hold up their hands and they say, you know, those two little black towers with the angled tops that look like they almost touch with the, the gap down the middle. And most people immediately know. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I know exactly the building. Well, I would say it is my favorite building, mm-hmm. you know, downtown. It, it, it is so dramatic. Those trapezoidal shapes mm-hmm. that you see at the top of the building, um, they're kind of repeated in, right. at, at the base. And if you go inside the lobby, it's incredible. All that drama that's happening at the skyline level is mm-hmm. also happening at the ground level. And so I always tell people visiting Houston, like, you need to go inside yeah. of this building. I sort of feel like people have to be told that it's okay to go in that building. It is so forbidding from the street. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful as you're driving around on the freeway or if you're flying over the skyline. But when you're walking around it, it's a bit forbidding. It's it's that high modernism phase of Houston, the sort of black glass at the sidewalk phase. Right, right. They're more like little monuments that have been plopped down and the doors are open. You can go in and you can experience the lobbies, but you're right. They they do feel a little overpowering because they they're not very welcoming. But now everybody has an open in, everybody has an open invitation from Gensler, right? To, to, to... <laughs> To, an invitation to at least go into the lobby, right? Absolutely, go into the lobby. So, and that building was 
that building was heralded like at the time it was built like Ada Louise Huxtable the New York Times architecture critic she called it the the building of the year in 1975 yeah. uh, and it was one of the reasons why she you know thought that Houston was the city of the future um it was like a path-breaking building right it was and and there were some challenging details that you didn't see in a lot of buildings like that angled glass mm -hmm. how they helped dealt with the window washing you know mechanisms and all kinds of technical details that how you deal with the mechanical systems that normally sit on top of a flat roof you know how do you disguise all those things and and, and really that <laughs> they think they did a terrific job making that building really look like an iconic piece of architecture and still did all the things a good functioning building needs to do all right let's move to the 80s okay um, let's talk about the the first Enron building, which is how I still know it uh -huh. um, at 1400 Smith. Uh -huh. um, I think Enron is such a sort of great symbol for the 1980s. But mm -hmm. um, so that building, it's it's another glassy skyscraper that wasn't really trying to connect to the street. Mm -hmm. You know, it's connected to the tunnel system. Could you talk about that one? Sure. It's, it's interesting in that you, we went from you're know, talking about Pennzoil, which was much more angular, you know, had some harsh angles to something mm -hmm. that was much softer. You know, this, this, uh, um, like you said, tall, glassy tower. Curvaceous. Curved ends. I've heard people compare it to like a razor, an electric razor, a okay. really tall, glassy electric razor. <laughs> I mean, the main thing I remember about that building is the skywalk that forms a, mm -hmm. a, a you know, oh. a complete oval right. right after they added the second glassy tower yeah when they added the yeah the enron tower number two yeah with the hat yeah. sort of twin they added that great sky tower that you drive under it's such a feeling of procession mm -hmm. like oh you're here and that's also curvy so curves were 1980s thing we were learning to do curved glass we learned to do curved glass and that gave us some beautiful architecture in particular at that intersection. And I think the, the reflectivity of that building is still one that it's always amazing when you can look at a building in, in 2022 and, and still think, gosh, that's a beautiful piece of architecture. And that's when you know you've done it right. I remember I got to, I don't know if you got to do this, Raj, but basically Enron collapsed just as they were about to open that second building, the other twin. And I got to tour that twin and see the interiors, which were such a great museum piece at that moment. Um, I remember the thing we were all fascinated by was Jeff Skilling's private bathroom. Um, oh my, It had what a black like? toilet. <laughs> of course. Of course it did. Um, and I just remember thinking, this is some sort of peak moment in corporate America. It was very stylish. It was very private. You had a real sense of who the bosses were as you were walking mm -hmm. through that empty building that really was never properly occupied by the people who commissioned it. And that's sort of the story of Houston's architecture, right? Um, I once interviewed this architect who was visiting from Paris named Tariq Wallalu. And he described Houston as this stroboscopic city, 
what he meant by that is like when you're at a disco and the lights turn on and off mm -hmm. and you, you can't see anything for a while well that's what he felt houston was like because the city is built in these uh spurts when there's money in short periods of time right. so in the late 70s and 80s you had that spurt and the pennzoil tower is uh you know one of the icons of that period and then there was the oil bust right and then nothing gets built for a long time right uh and, and then you have this other spurt of building and you know the enron edition uh is gets built and then it, it doesn't really get occupied uh and then we had another kind of dark period mm -hmm. Um, that in some ways we're just, I, I, I don't know, maybe in the last uh, five or six years, we've just started adding yeah. towers to Houston again. So in the 1990s, Stephanie, like mm -hmm. when nobody was building new stuff, yeah. people were still like having new offices. What was Gensler working on then? You know, one of the most notable things that I felt like we worked on in the 90s was the renovation of the Esperson buildings. We took something that was old and worked on making it very new again. Most people, um, you know, when they yeah. experience that tunnel level at Esperson, you know, they just they just loved yeah. it. It was something very new and different. So could you describe the Esperson building? I'm sure people had driven by it and thought, oh, that lovely old yellow building. It's, it's yellow brick. Um, I think for those who go through downtown the most in terms of like as, as pedestrians and, and as pedestrians, we typically find ourselves mm -hmm. in the tunnel area is it's the um, sort of art mm -hmm. deco and then the ice cream cone shaped pieces that were added to the, the columns down in the, the food court area. Yeah, that feels very 1980s. It does. And then you go up to the 1920s building yes. that you were working on in the 1990s, yes. bringing it back. So what was it like in the 1990s? Well, a lot of it had been covered up with just some pretty lackluster, mm -hmm. just sort of, I think people thought when they were renovating at the time or updating by covering up some of the, the history that was there they were doing the right thing. And it's amazing how absence makes the heart grow fonder around some of those things. So what did it look like? Paint the before picture. The before? Yeah. It was- So people had covered up the old stuff to quote unquote modernize it? Yeah, yeah, just very simple, clean, painted. Um, I think there may have been some stone panels, it's, but it was pretty simple. I mean, it was simple, <laughs> simple and clean. And then you go in and you peel back mm -hmm. the, the layer of the modern layer, I'll call it. And you find these things underneath that were just beautiful and they've been hidden. They're hidden gems. And you're glad that they didn't remove it. You're glad that they just covered it up. Yeah. So, and, and I, and the chances are they just covered it up because that was going to be the less expensive thing to do at the time. You know, you're like, oh, we don't need to take off all that. We can just cover it up. <laughs> and then, you know, then we go back later and you peel it off and you find pieces of architecture, whether it's the, mm -hmm. the call buttons for the elevators or the numbers, it says, you know, where the, where you can see which floor the elevator is on. Yeah. So let's like move on into the 2000s. You guys worked on 1000 Main. We did work on 1000 Main. That was um, other than the Inadarko Tower out in the woodlands. 
this was really the second notable piece of you know, base building architecture that our firm worked on in, you know, from the Houston office. And um, it was, we were very proud to have a building downtown. You, know, you, you felt like you'd hit the big leagues. And this was, this was after that long stretch of Houston not yes. building anything Another new. long 10 year stretch. And so what was 1000 Main like? What, what does it look like? 1000 Main does a much better job of welcoming people from the Main Street side because it, it was his address, 1000 Main. This was when the, the rail mm -hmm. was now going through there. We were starting to talk about what we could do to improve that whole Main Street experience. The idea that people would be on the streets, that right. was kind of new, right? Right, was kind of new. That Houston was a pedestrian place and you might want to walk on a sidewalk in the city. Right. And it was also uh, the first time where the building lobby really tried to open up to the tunnel level as well. This one has that large round opening and they had the bank. A bank was down there. I don't recall which bank moved in first, but they, there was enough daylight coming in from the the street level mm -hmm. that people who occupied and inhabited the, the tunnel level had a nice amount of daylight. They didn't feel underground. And also you could stand at the first floor and see the tunnel. You could, you could. In a way that was much clearer. You, you, know, mm -hmm. you weren't taking an escalator to God knows where. Yeah. <laughs> One of the great laments about, you know, Houston's downtown is that it's kind of lifeless. You know, it, people always find something to blame, right? Like, oh, oh it's the tunnels. Yeah. It sucks the life out of the streets. <laughs> or it's just too dang hot to walk around outside Houston. But I've always found those excuses is like insufficient. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not sure why Houston doesn't have uh, a, more life on the streets because there are other downtowns that have you know, um, tunnel systems or, or, or bridges. And there are other cities, uh, most cities have some horrible weather, like cold or something. Mm -hmm. I think that not having that, that pedestrian zone at the base of those buildings that was welcoming to people beyond just the tenants of the building, you know, it, it did mm -hmm. some, some of the life off the street and it forced people to look for alternatives and it pulled them into the tunnels and they, use the hot weather as an excuse. But now that we have um, more and more of those things happening, even on the hottest of days, you can go through downtown and you'll see people sitting outside. They'll be in the shade, the shady part, but yeah. they'll be sitting outside <laughs> having their lunch or drinking yeah. coffee or having a, a quick meeting with you know, a work colleague or friend. And so the 2000s, that's when that started happening. Mm -hmm. But downtown in the 2000s was still a place where you went to go to work, you know, you went into the office, maybe you had lunch, but yeah. whatever life was there was stopping at 6 p.m. Right. I mean, Jane Jacobs. The great architecture writer. This great architecture, another New Yorker, uh -huh. uh, you know, and she claimed that it was this mix of building types, mix of uh, buildings of different ages, uh, and a mix of uses that, that kept a city um alive and you know by the time i moved here in 2001 and by the time i got here so much of downtown had been demolished so i just feel like even when you have a building that's built new and the architects have tried to engage the street and the street level design they opens up more it's so new and i'm, I'm imagining the rent is so high 
that um, you don't get that gritty feel that a, a downtown that retained more of its old um, architecture with like a mix of old and new. You, you still don't get that. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if my grandkids will get that. <laughs> <laughs> We got gritty during oil downturns, Raj. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and the other thing that I find just really fascinating about downtown Houston, we now started to have some really nice architecture, modern architecture blended in with the the old texture, the old fabric of of Houston, where you have the, the covered sidewalks and the high curbs. All those things served a purpose. Oh, yeah. We had to have the high curbs because when it would rain, you needed the water to stay in the street and wash away without pouring into the retail or the the offices or whatever was there at street level. And you needed this, the covered sidewalk so that when people would stroll along in the early parts of Houston days, they were protected from all of the heat and the sun. And so the combination of having the series of buildings now blended in with um, some of the, the, the history that's managed to survive along Main Street, I think is just a, a wonderful combination. I, I had the chance to work with this aerial architectural photographer, Alex McLean. He flies an airplane and, and then and he's like leaning out the window, taking photos of, of, of buildings <laughs> like while he's flying. But he shot this amazing photograph in the in the 80s that showed um, the eastern part of downtown. So it's still downtown, but mm -hmm. it was just massive amounts of vacant lots uh, is, you know, just stretching for as far as the, the whole frame of the photo. And we asked him to come back and take the same shot from the same angle 30 years later. And it was just totally transformed. You had Discovery Green in the middle, right? And you had uh, the convention center and then all these new high rises all around it. And at the base of one is that Phoenicia, mm -hmm. you know, the, I think it's right. called Discovery Tower, maybe. And that was like the first residential tower that had built, built it downtown for decades. Like I think probably since Rice you Hotel. Know? So that was something. <laughs> right. But so that's yeah. really promising. But okay, this is, this is my little argument. So in 1975, where we started, so Pennzoil Place was like, the most exciting building of the year. The New York Times is sending its critic down. You know, Houston was at the cutting edge of architecture. Whereas all these these newer buildings, like the, the new Heinz buildings are nowhere near as exciting. Like the New York Times isn't sending their critics down to review these buildings you're talking about. So in a way, Houston's architecture has become way more boring. Uh, in terms of like the global debate and the global discourse about like, you know, cutting edge design. Um, but I guess maybe it's better for the city. But is it more livable? You know, am I a happier person if I've got like a sidewalk cafe rather than a giant new thing on my skyline? Houston has maybe. plenty of stuff to drive past or fly over. Maybe this you know. maybe boring is better if it means like I can walk on the street. Well, I'm not bored on the street. I don't think it has to be boring to be accommodating to the pedestrian. I do think, and it's not an excuse, but I, I think it's our attention has been drawn to the sustainability side of architecture, especially in a hot climate like Houston, where we've been focused more on 
how, how we can make buildings more efficient, even the positioning, how they sit on a site. And the Texas Tower is a, a great example of that, why they turned it at a slight angle. And I, th- I personally find Texas Tower to be a very exciting piece of architecture and a nice addition to the Houston skyline. I think every time we get a little bit better at how do we make the human experience a good one, and still and still deliver good mm-hmm. good architecture. So let's talk about the future. What does Houston still need downtown? What do you hope to see in the next decade? We need to start filling in and rounding out downtown to make it a true downtown. You mentioned Discovery Green and all the activities yeah. that happen there. I think, and there's there's the new tower that Skanska is building down there by Hilton Americas. I think downtown is really starting to sort of fill in and become a better downtown than what it was in in the 70s when it was just a long linear downtown. And it's filling in in another way too. We have all this residential that's coming in. And, you know, I even hear that some of the office towers that are empty right now might be converted. They are. We have Kinder HSPVA, the Performing and Visual Arts School. I never thought I'd see a school in downtown. It used to be that people only went downtown to work. My daughter actually attends HSPVA uh-huh. and, um, you know, it is exciting to see all those young people sort of in live in the space. So the most exciting space, uh, there's all this great architecture happening inside, you know, you go in and there's this stair and mm-hmm. um, the, it's dramatic and then you go up and then there's all these studios and the sculpting space has like these chains that you can like hang the whatever they sculpt on and (laughs) there's studios and theaters but the most exciting space is the bus bus driveway because the the bus lane (laughs) because um sometimes at at lunchtime the the kids you know eat out there Mm -hmm. and the jazz band will like jam um and the kids are just out there um you know, bringing life to the street, which is often so lacking. All right, y'all. Thanks so much. This has been fun. This has been fun. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Raj. <laughs> Thank you. I, I miss talking about buildings, though. So oh. I really appreciate the chance. That was Stephanie Burrett of the architecture firm Gensler and Raj Mankad of the Houston Chronicle. Now, I am here with lead producer Dina Kesva. Dina, what other things are going on around Houston today? Thanks, Lisa. All right, y'all. If you're a 50 Cent fan, then you know how exciting it was to have him move to our city a little over a year ago. So I'm excited to share that the legendary rapper is further showing us his H-Town pride by partnering with the Houston Texans. Now, that partnership is through him making his premium wine and spirits company, Sire Spirits LLC, the official cognac and champagne of the Texans. And the team's 5050 jackpot will also be sponsored by 50 Cent's G Unit Foundation. That is it for our show today. This Thursday, the CityCast crew and I will be talking about the best brunches in Houston. If you've got a nomination, please call us. Tell us your favorite brunch. Dial 713-489-6972. And when you hear our voicemail beep, tell us your name and the brunch you love most and why. We'll be back tomorrow. 
Talk with you then. Yeah, maybe okay. it's better. Sorry, maybe Stephanie. It's better I'm, just, I'm just going to bicker with Raj for a minute.